namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami There was a situation recently occurred which reminded me of um, some years ago, many years ago actually, when I was at high school and I was, uh, when I was a youngster I was encouraged to enter into the Rotary Speech Contest and I think it was part of my preparation for being a preacher and um, this year I remember the subject that was given for speaking on was is the experience of religion supposed to be comforting or challenging? And so I was reminded of this recently and and re- tried to recall what, what I'd spoken on at the time and my recollection is that actually I, I addressed the subject very well and I, I think I gave a good speech, but um, I don't remember very well. I don't. I didn't get past the finals. I think. Um, I think they failed me because my argument was that religion should be both comforting and challenging, and I think they said I didn't address the subject properly because it was should it be one or the other. However, um, I got to think about it and. I think it is something worth considering, this experience of religion and what are we looking for in it. Are we looking for comfort? Uh, Are we looking for a consoling message? Or does it challenge us? And what do we think it's supposed to do? Well, my view is, as I said before, I still think it's actually supposed to be both, and my own commitment and with religion is born of an interest, a passionate, enthusiastic interest in both of these, finding real comfort and also skillful challenges. And there's a lot in life that we can find comforting, but it's not necessarily uh, according with, with what takes us to sustainable well-being. Um, we can feel comfortable maybe if we, we get drunk or otherwise we're distracting ourselves, but skillful comfort and skillful challenges. Again, there's a, a lot in life that can, can, we can find challenging. <coughs> we can engage in things that challenge us. But are they productive of something meaningful? 
So how is religion, the experience of religion, comforting and should it be? From the time of the Buddha, it's, um, it was said that for many people, the impulse to pick up an inner life or to engage in an inner life or spiritual life or religious <coughs> practices is motivated by suffering. That it's dissatisfaction or unhappiness that, that causes us to look for something more than sens- sensual gratification. And the, the story of the, the Buddha's own life, he, it wasn't pleasure that, that um, inspired him to, to pick up the life of renunciation and pursuit of liberation and freedom. It was, it was despair that arose out of his, <coughs> his seeing uh, old age sickness and death and then the renunciate and so this perception of old age sickness and death we're told actually took the Buddha into a state of despondency and, and thinking is this going to happen to me too and, and then the hope arose when, when he the Buddha to be or the Bodhisattva saw a renunciate that is a seeker somebody who, who is engaged in, in a, a commitment made a commitment to a life of, of seeking a solution to this painful feeling. So I think for many of us there, there, there's a lot that yeah, causes us pain, causes us suffering. The, the current global situation, the um, building crisis that, that we're all I'm sure aware of, and the ongoing struggles that we see in our everyday life, the sadness, the the acute crisis of people's lives or the, the everyday mediocrity of those around us can lead us to feeling very uh, depressed or, or terribly saddened. Or today there were a group of friends came to the monastery here and bringing the ashes of somebody, a very good friend of theirs, who who had died, and and uh, great sadness was a young man and a tragic death and tragic loss, and and very real grief and sadness and and it is comfort that that we look for when we're suffering, <coughs> and it's right I feel that we look for this in our just the various skillful means, the various practices that that are offered in, in our Buddhist path. It would be inappropriate, I would suggest, to to challenge people who are suffering um, in ways that that um, confront perhaps the deeper causes of their suffering. I mean those of us who know anything about Buddhism know that you know the basic Buddhist teaching is that we suffer because we're attached and so if we've lost somebody dear to us and you, you go to your, your Buddhist friends for some, for, from, for some comfort and some solace and they tell you, well, you shouldn't have got attached in the first place. Everything is impermanent, unsatisfactory. It's not self. It's your own fault for suffering. Well, that wouldn't be the right approach, would it? That's obvious. Mm. There is a place for seeking comfort, and 
and finding friends, companions, spiritual companions, people who, who we feel are not going to judge us in our suffering, people who share an interest in suffering. You know, suffering, because we suffer, is not, does not a sign, it's not a sign that we're failing. It's not an indictment against us that we're suffering. From a worldly perspective, that it might be the case. Uh, I think it is the case, generally speaking, that, that uh, you know, you're not supposed to be suffering, you're supposed to be you know, just getting by, and you know, you're not supposed to get depressed or upset. Or if you are, then of course you're supposed to get over it. And there are some things we don't get over. Some some sufferings are just unreasonable and and deep. And to have a friend, to have somebody who shares an interest in reality, and out of that interest in reality and a compassionate sensitivity to our suffering, they're willing to receive us, is a great comfort, a very real comfort, and one of the most important comforts. I would say, in life, and to have spiritual companions or Kalyana Mitta. To have places that we can go to, places like this, sanctuaries. Mm. A lot of effort has already gone into building this place and similar places, and, and I personally am very committed to, to seeing the completion of, of this, this place. I really, I really feel very strongly that that, that to have a place to go to, a place that is consecrated to truth, to reality, a place that is consecrated to truth, is a great solace, a great comfort, just to be able to go into a place that's not charging you for being there. You don't have to be famous or popular or good-looking or wealthy or anything to go to a monastery. Yeah. They're open, the doors are open, and to find a place where the doors are open and you can go in and take your suffering and offer your suffering up and to feel that your suffering is received is a great comfort and I think a skillful way of dealing with our suffering. So friends and places places that we can go to and, and things that we can do. And also in finding skillful ways of finding comfort in, in things that we can do and the, the practices that we're encouraged to cultivate and the um, meditations the dedication dedicating dedicating punya is a, is a is something that one can do I know particularly at funerals or in such, such sad occasions where we feel so helpless in the face of our suffering, often people just want something to do and, and uh, witnessing these people who came today to come and there's nothing they can do about their friend, their son, their brother, their, their companion who has, has passed away. They can't bring him back. He's moved on. He's gone. But to be able to do something wholesome, good, to do something good, to generate some goodness, and and the traditional Buddhist way of generating goodness, and coming to the monastery here, a place that is consecrated to reality, and to make a gesture of support to to this place and to the monks who live here, and this act of goodness, and then 
and then dedicating this act of goodness, so the dedication of an act of punya. And uh, perhaps doesn't necessarily automatically feel comfortable to us because it's, it's, it's not something we were brought up with, but it is a skillful means that I, I, I know myself, having cultivated it for many years, find it a, a, very, a very real sense of comfort to feel that you can cultivate punya, you can cultivate goodness, you can build up a storehouse of goodness, and by way of body, speech and mind we can do good things, and, and doing good things through sila, through restraint, through generosity, through cultivating honesty, impeccability, these good acts of body and speech and mind generate a storehouse of goodness, which then we can dedicate. So the dedication of punya. And then the meditation on loving-kindness, the meditation on compassion. Actually having very concrete, clear things that we can do that generate a sense of comfort. Doing chanting. Times of, I know myself, times of great despair and grief, I I found meditation was completely out there out of the window. I couldn't do meditation and had too much pain and sadness. And But I could chant. I could remember some chants that I'd learnt and being able to recite these verses that are all about reality, even though I wasn't necessarily seeing reality, I could recite these verses about reality, about truth. And the Buddhist Dhamma teachings was a very real source of comfort. So I'm, I, I do feel that it is the place of religion to offer comfort to people, soulless, in various ways. And, but I also feel that there is the place of um, challenge and, and perhaps the primary domain or the primary function of, of religion, I would say, the primary function would be to challenge us. However, it, they go together. I know that there's a place in the scriptures where the Buddha was saying that if somebody's hungry, feed them before you start teaching Dhamma. You don't, don't go teaching people the suffering because of their attachment. You know, if they're hungry, feed them first. And I think that symbolizes very well, very, very skillfully, the approach to these things. And the Buddha's teaching is challenging our ignorance regarding the nature of reality so that we can see what it is we're doing that's creating our suffering. But there is a context in which this takes place. And the context is one of well-being. Time and time again, the the Buddha delivered his teachings and the the great disciples delivered the, the Dhamma in a very skillful, gradual way. He wouldn't come in, the Buddha wouldn't come in straight away with the Four Noble Truths and saying, well, there's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, that is, you're clinging, there's an end of suffering, which is when you stop clinging, and there's something you can do about it. That wasn't the first teaching that he, he would give. Rather, first he would deliver the teachings in a way where, which led people to a sense of confidence and well-being, encouraging people to do good things, to live their life in skillful ways, to to cultivate through understanding and, and sensitivity 
a skillful relationship with life, so the things that we do with our body and speech don't cause us suffering. Pointing out how living a life of impeccability means that a heart is free from remorse. And this heart of well-being, this heart that is free from remorse, this is the place that we can really engage the, the actual challenges of life in a productive way. So I would say that, that engaging the challenges of life is our task, our religious task, our spiritual task, a real task, but there is a context in, in which we do this, and the context is one of having a good, strong, big storehouse of, of well-being, of goodness, and it's wise and skillful to know how to cultivate this. The cultivation of, of this well-being, this goodness, or the cultivation or the recognition of how to find comfort is primarily to do with actually um, making things comfortable according to our preferences. We, we prefer not to be sad, we prefer not to be uncomfortable, hungry, miserable, depressed, lonely. And so finding good friends and physical health and emotional comfort is, is skillful, but it is still in the realm of actually um, preferences, keeping our preferences happy. Whereas the practice the real practice of purification, or the primary spiritual activity, is going against preferences. And sometimes, if we don't understand how these different dimensions of spiritual practice function, we can get confused. And you can come across the, the, the teachings of the Buddha or the great masters and, and, and see how challenging they are of our preferences and if we're at a state of you know feeling depleted and diminished and without confidence and, and well-being you know, we can engage in these trying to meet these challenges and actually make ourselves feel a lot worse so that's why i say that there is a context for picking up this dimension of the practice but it does need to be understood as actually countering our preferences if we don't understand this well then when we apply ourselves to the practices which are challenging our preferences and we get a little unhappy we get a little discontent we can think something's going wrong but it's not going wrong if anything is wrong it's the relationship we have with our preferences Now, the right relationship with our preferences, our conditioned preferences that give us our likes and dislikes, which we all have, the right relationship with these is to know them as conditioned preferences. And we all have them. We all prefer to have agreeable physical sensations. And yet when we sit in meditation and the encouragement is to be still, to discipline attention, to discipline the body, and focus our attention 
to hone it down till it becomes one-pointed. And in that one-pointed state, where is harmony of, of body and heart and mind, it comes to that point of samadhi or tranquility or stillness or one-pointedness. In that dimension, we're able to read reality quite differently from when our heart and mind and body are all distracted and dissipated. And so we're encouraged to cultivate this one-pointedness. But to get to this state of one-pointedness, there does need to be restraint. And sitting still, the body gets uncomfortable, and it doesn't accord with our preferences. Now, if we don't understand that actually our preferences are just that, they're just preferences and they need to be challenged, we start to feel uncomfortable and say, I don't like this, and so we move. And so we move, we follow our preferences. But if we keep following our preferences, then we never really get to the point of stillness that we're looking for, or one-pointedness. So this is encouragement to be willing to go against our preferences, not because feeling happy is something wrong. That's a misunderstanding that sometimes arises. and People pick up religious teachings in the wrong way and, and can start thinking that you know, you're not supposed to feel pleasure. You're supposed to suffer. There's a, a metaphor, an image the Buddha gave talking about the discipline. He said, if you pick this up in the wrong way, it's like, it's like grasping something in the wrong way. It can cut you. Or it's like picking up a knife. If you pick up a knife by the wrong end, you can get cut. If you pick it up by the right end, well, then you can cut through something. Like a sickle. You, you, know, you, you want to cut the grass out there in the walled garden, you, you pick up the sickle by the hand and handle and you slash away and you can cut the grass down. Of course, if you pick up the sickle by the blade, well, you know, you cut your hand and you don't cut very much grass. That's obviously foolish. Well, the tools that are given in spiritual discipline, likewise, have to be picked up in the right way. And so the challenges to our preferences need to be picked up with right understanding. Yes, we need to go against our preferences, but it's so that we can have a right relationship to our preferences. If we always cultivate feeling comfortable, if we always give ourselves what we want, when we want, then we actually, in terms of reality, the chances are we'll never actually get to see preferences as preferences. We'll never actually get to see our likes and our dislikes as simply conditioned. If we're always following them, we'll always feel like it's me. Every time I give myself what I want, I feel gratified, and this I grows a little bigger and a little happier. And every time I avoid that which I don't like, then I feel a little pleased, more pleased with myself. And so I get happier and stronger. So the way of Dhamma actually contradicts this and goes against this and says, don't give ourselves what we want. And when we engage that, when we meet that which we don't like or don't want, then feel that, don't turn away from it. In other words, go against the preferences. Not, so, not because there's something wrong with gratifying our desires, but so that we can see the reality of our preferences, see that our preferences are conditioned. And then there's another level of comfort becomes available to us. Yes, there is the comfort that comes from 
finding solace in understanding company and friends and places to go and things that we can do that make ourselves feel good, that's important. But on another level, the heart knows that circumstances could conspire and we could be very uncomfortable and very unhappy again. That's why I say the primary function of religion is to take us to the level of comfort that is the heart being comfortable itself, not merely a level of emotional or physical or mental comfort, but the, whole, the, the, the core of our being being comfortable. And that comfort and that contentment arises with understanding or with clear seeing. And the clear seeing is with regards to the, the nature of our preferences. So as I was saying, if, if we don't understand this, we can hear the Buddha's teachings about going against our preferences and, and, and not just following our likes and dislikes. If we don't understand it, then, then we can, we can, one thing we can do is pick them up in the wrong way and hurt ourselves, thinking that there's some virtue in following our dislikes. And, and the Buddha himself did that for a few years, well, before he was the Buddha and the Bodhisattva, he, following the path of self-mortification for several years and made himself very unhappy and nearly died in the process and until he realized, well, that's not it either. Following sensual indulgence for many years and gratifying his desires and making life as comfortable as possible, that hadn't done it. When he engaged old age, sickness and death, he got depressed and miserable. And then following asceticism and frustrating his desires, that didn't do it. But then he said when he actually resolved to settle the matter and through the accumulation of goodness over his many lifetimes was able to come to the point of seeing clearly for himself that taking any fixed position for or against our conditioned likes and dislikes is going to create suffering learning how to not take a position for or against anything, all of our likes and dislikes, not take a position for or against anything, is freedom. And he called it the middle way. So this middle way, the Buddha said, is born out of right understanding regarding the nature of things. And To understand the nature of things, we, we do need to actually go against our preferences. So the trainings that we have, the training of of sila and really making an effort to refrain from following heedless tendencies. And then in formal meditation, restraining ourselves from moving every time there's an impulse or restraining our minds from, from controlling or containing or focusing attention when the, the tendency of the mind is to to just follow a preference. The encouragement is to restrain the mind, not out of a judgment, but out of an interest in the reality. Can I choose to not follow this? I think it's in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta where the Buddha is talking about the meditator sitting in meditation experiences pleasure and they know there is pleasure, just that much. 
how do we get to the point of knowing there is pleasure instead of indulging in pleasure and following it and seeing how can I get more of it? How do we get to that point? Well, we have to restrain ourselves. Usually it's the case that when pleasurable impulses arise, our habits are such that we just want to have more. That's pleasurable. How can I have more pleasure? Now that's a conditioned impulse. That's a preference for pleasure. If we follow the preference for pleasure, well then, unfortunately, what happens is when there is suffering, we can't restrain ourselves from resisting the pain. Our preference is to get rid of the pain. To have more pleasure and to get rid of more pain, the the pain, that's preference. Right understanding arises when we actually become interested in the reality of our preferences. When pleasure arises, can we, can we inhibit the tendency, inhibit the desire, not because we think desire is wrong or right or anything, no opinion about desire, but because we're interested in the reality of desire. If we don't understand that, that the practice requires us to challenge or go against our preferences, then we won't be encouraged to do that. We feel there's either desire of something to follow or something to resist or judge. Two options. We won't suspect the middle way. So this teaching about the middle way is an encouragement to challenge our preferences, to simply undermine the way things appear to be, both the agreeable and the disagreeable. Sometimes when there's pain, real suffering, real, and I don't just mean little pain in our knees, I mean when the bottoms fall out of your world and something deeply hurtful has happened. The apparent reality is this is going to last forever. This is too much. This I cannot stand. I cannot handle this. That thought arises in the mind. And the preference when I feel like I can't stand this anymore, my preference is to stop it, get out of here, do something. That's my preference, that's my wish. I prefer it not to be this way. Dhamma practices inhibit that tendency to try and change the situation and be with it the way it is. To be with the way things are is the path of practice, to insight into the way things are, into the reality of the way things are. So if we're not convinced, if we don't have faith in this path of practice, which challenges our preferences, then we're simply not motivated to do that. And that's unfortunate. We remain convinced by the apparent nature of things. This pain, this disappointment, this despair, this sadness, this grief, appears to be permanent. It's always going to be this way, so I've got to do something, get out of here, or do something, anything other than be with it. And so we're lacking the faith and the practice. We don't have the energy to stay with it. and We can't see through the way it appears to be. So that's the point of challenging our preferences. We challenge our preferences not as a judgment of the preferences. We challenge our preferences so as to be able to see through the way they appear to be. They're so convincing. They feel so convincing on their apparent level. And yet we've all been fooled so many times. 
So the encouragement is to really generate the understanding that we need to go against our preferences out of an interest in seeing through to their reality. Mm. And seeing through, seeing beyond, seeing that they're just conditioned and just programmed. Mm. Like the body has preferences and the mind has preferences. The body has preferences which actually there's nothing we can do about. We're not going to change our preferences. I personally, I always prefer, you've heard me talk about this before I'm sure, I always prefer peanut butter and honey on toast to fermented rat and rice gruel for breakfast or fermented fish. Now, fermented fish and chilies for breakfast, you know, so long as I live, I am sure that my preferences will never find that more agreeable than peanut butter and honey on really nice, crunchy, brown bread toast. I suspect most of you are the same. But that's a preference of the body. That's because that's the way we we grew up. Now, there are people on this planet who actually wouldn't want really nice, crunchy peanut butter and honey, manuka honey, you know, on brown bread toast with butter melting, dripping down the sides. They would much rather have pickled fish and chilies with vinegar and onions in their rice soup for breakfast. <laughs> I find that quite unthinkable, but it's true. There are people in the world who really prefer that. And that's a thing of the body. That's if you know if that's what you're born, you grow up and you have that every day, then that the body gets accustomed to that. What can change is the relationship to the preferences. If there's an uninformed, un, un, un ignorant relationship to the preferences, then when the anagarikas come in in the morning and they bring me this nice crunchy bread with crunchy peanut butter on nice toast and I feel good, then I get totally lost in it and I pay them compliments and I tell them how good they are as anagarikas and how there's, you know, they're obviously doing very well and encourage them to bring it again the next day. And then the next day, when they bring in fermented fish and chilies and onions and vinegar and some watery soupy porridge, and I fly off the handle and tell them that they're ridiculous and ignorant and foolish people. And In other words, I get very upset. My preferences are frustrated and I become upset. My preferences are... are served and I get what I want and I become elated. I am caught up in my preferences. I am defined by my preferences. That's an ignorant relationship to preferences. If there's an informed relationship to preferences, a wise relationship to preferences, whereas when we've actually inhibited our tendency to believe in the way things appear to be long enough to be able to see through them, to see that that desire is a movement in the mind. It arises appears, can be felt, can be received without judgment, and disappears, just like a piece of dust floating through space. The space is not interfered with or defined by the bit of dust that floats through it, or a ripple across the ocean. That ripple across the ocean does not change the nature of the ocean. It's quite natural for the ocean to have that wave move across it. That's in its nature. But that, ra that wave does not define the nature of the ocean. Likewise, a, a desire passing through the mind does not define our mind. 
So if we've seen that, if we've inhibited our tendencies to follow our preferences long enough to see through the way things appear to be, then we have what could be called a wise perspective on preferences. And so whether it's toast or fermented pickled fish or frogs or whatever that turn up for breakfast, yes, the body will still feel agreeability and disagreeability, but the heart will not become elated or depressed. And that's the difference. That's the principle. And it's an important principle. If we understand and we accept that principle, well then we can be willing to endure disagreeability. We don't approach life looking for it to be agreeable. We don't say, although I had a really good meditation, just because you felt pleasant. I often hear people, I say, how's your meditation? They said, oh God, it was really hopeless, really hopeless. And then I find a wall that I said, what, did you get up and walk away after five minutes? They said, no, 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 I sat there for 30 minutes. So well, what was hopeless about it? I said, well, it's just, you know, the mind wouldn't settle and, you know, no peaceful feelings, no clarity. You know. I said, well, did you know that it wasn't peaceful? Did you know that it was lacking clarity? I said, oh, yes, I knew. I said, well, you know, what makes that terrible? Well, what makes it terrible was that it didn't agree with their preferences. And so they decided it was a terrible meditation. And, or if they, I, I asked them, how was your meditation? They say, oh, oh, really good, really, really good. I had a really good meditation. The body was alert and energetic. The mind was bright and clear. I'm really doing well in my practice. And I think, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's preference. Training, our training is a willingness, a felt willingness to go against their preferences. Not a philosophical opinion that gratifying our desires is wrong. No, that's very initial approach to this sort of practice. Training is discovering a willingness to go against our preferences for the sake of understanding so that we can find freedom from them. Not changing their preferences, but freedom from being defined by them. I would prefer that the world was harmonious and everybody got on with everybody else. The reality is that there's a lot of conflict. My preferences are frustrated. Does that mean to say that I have to fall into despair? If it does, well then, from the Buddhist perspective, that's really unfortunate. That's, that's a result of an ignorant relationship to preferences. A wise relationship to preferences means that yes, we can still feel sadness, we can still feel disappointment, but we're not defined by it. We don't, our intelligence is not compromised. Our, our capacity for, for contemplating the predicament we're in is not compromised by the way we feel. So when we really grasp this principle, internalize this principle, well then we don't approach life looking for it to be agreeable or defining it as a failure because it's disagreeable. We don't approach our meditation just expecting it to be pleasant. Or a retreat, if we go on a retreat and it's, we don't necessarily have profound insights, we don't define the retreat as, as a failure. Or relationships, when our relationships are, are strained and we're not necessarily getting on with each other harmoniously, we don't say it's all going wrong. We feel, yes, this is painful, this is disagreeable, but it's not wrong. 
to say it's wrong is extra. It's painful, yes. But we can, if we have a willingness to approach that pain with interest, to challenge our preferences, well then from the Buddhist perspective that's the path that leads to understanding. And that understanding is really comforting. The comfort that comes from seeing through something that used to appear so threatening. The comfort that comes from an inner strength that that is born out of understanding. An inner strength that's born out of understanding. When when you have the understanding that that desire is not the way it appears to be, then you can let all sorts of totally weird desires into your mind. In the beginning, when we start to get a little sensitive, a little aware of what goes on in our mind, we think, my goodness, my mind is full of all sorts of really unwholesome desires. And, and you start to feel guilty and ashamed about some of the unwholesome tendencies of our mind. But that's because we're actually still caught up in them. And if we practice a little restraint and inhibiting the tendency to follow these things through judgment and, and study them and observe them, then maybe one day we get to the point where we actually see through them. We see, we're sitting there in awareness and desire or, or ill will or fear or some other condition arises in the mind and we remain clear, confident, open as awareness. We abide as the awareness in which all this is taking place. All this is passing through awareness. It arises, it's there and it ceases. And we're not defined by it. That gives rise to another level of comfort, another level of confidence. So thank you very much for your attention. Mm-hmm.